All right, good afternoon to you guys. Thank you for joining me here. I'd like to think that the reason why we have such a small turnout is because everybody else is doing what they can to minimize their own burnout. And so they're taking care of themselves uh, here in Las Vegas somewhere. Um, all of the other talks that I've given here um, at Pain Week have related to uh, care of the patients, uh, different treatment modalities, different pathways that we can do to try to help improve uh, outcomes for patients. Um, but while we're providing care for patients, it's important to make sure that we're doing things to take care of ourselves as well. Right? And this is an issue that unfortunately doesn't really get addressed too terribly often when we're engaged in patient care because we're so focused on taking care of other people that we're not looking at ourselves and making sure that we're taking care of ourselves. And so what I wanted to do today was talk a little bit about burnout, help you guys understand a little bit more about what it is um, and what are some basic, simple things that you can do to try to prevent uh, burnout, that you can do to promote wellness, and what some organizations, namely Stanford, what we're doing, I'm at an institutional level to try to help address this issue. A um, couple of uh, disclosures. I am on the advisory board for a couple of companies. And learning objectives, we've already gone over. So there's been a lot of good things that have happened in um, healthcare and in medicine over the last few decades, over the last century. Um, it, we can look at a lot of diseases that were once very significant that caused people to, that were basically terminal diseases that now people are able to live long lives even though they have these diseases. HIV is a great example of one of these types of things where now um, HIV is something that can be managed, whereas there was a period of time where it caused a significant amount of concern, a significant scare. Um, there are other conditions that used to have a prolonged treatment course that now have a very acute treatment course. And all of these things are great advances that we've seen in our medical science over time. In the field of pain, we've seen pretty significant advances. For example, in the last five, ten years, we've seen pretty significant advances in neuromodulation. Um, and so that's been an exciting thing to see. So there's been a lot of neat and interesting developments over time, and those things continue to occur on a daily basis. And that's a great thing for all of us, for our families, for our children, because it means a brighter future for us from a health perspective. But while there's been a lot of good things that have happened in terms of health, there is a flip side uh, in terms of things that have changed in our healthcare system that has some information that's not so great. So over the years, there's been increasing efforts to provide high-quality care, which is a good thing, but doing it with decreasing costs. And so there's been cutbacks on support staff, cutbacks on the things that are really important for us to be able to provide that high-quality care. Um, as we have these medical advances that do allow people to live uh, with these different uh, disease processes, we find that the complexity of cases becomes higher. Um, when a person comes in with pain, they now have a full range of different types of comorbidities that we have to juggle as we're looking at how we manage their pain conditions. And then the electronic medical record. What a joy it is to have so much information at our fingertips. What a pain in the butt it is to have so much information at our fingertips, right? It's a blessing and a curse. And I think particularly for folks in primary care. How many people here are in primary care? Okay, so a handful of folks in primary care. I think particularly for primary care, it's a particular challenge because now all of a sudden you have this plethora of information that you have to gather on people or that you have to follow up on. You know, somebody may be coming into your clinic for a visit with symptoms in the left lower extremity, that's early signs of complex regional pain syndrome, and you know from going to pain week and all your other pain conferences that there are different things that you need to do to act early to try to get this person on the path to recovery, but the computer alerts you that, oh, their blood pressure is high. Wait, did they get their labs done? Wait, what are their sugars? And all of a sudden you have to spend your visit doing all these other things or else you get dinged in the system, right? So you have to now spend part of your visit doing all this other work that's not even related to the primary reason for the patient's visit, 
but you're not given any extra time, um, even though the electronic medical record has you doing all this additional work. Also with the electronic medical record, there are different things that we have to start to document. There are certain phrases that we have to put in our notes to make sure that we get reimbursed for the services that we provide, which adds an extra burden for the clinician. And because of all this burden, a lot of clinicians end up just spending time after the workday taking care of all these things, right? They say, I'm gonna, I'll just do my clinical care during the day, um, and I'll just spend all my time at the end of the day in front of the computer taking care of this. Or even if they go home, they'll do it remotely, but they're still engaged in doing some sort of EMR work long after the day is over. Patient access has become another issue that's come up, where a lot of institutions are putting a lot of demand on how quickly can patients be seen. They want to have a certain turnaround time. We want people to be able to have new appointments within one week, within two weeks. We want return visits within X number of weeks. And that puts a lot of demand on the clinician and on the system as well. And so it's not uncommon to see a lot of clinicians, they end up double booking themselves, you know, with the, with the hope that, well, perhaps we're going to have somebody who no-shows, there's going to be somebody who cancels. But invariably, there are going to be a number of people where both the people show up for that appointment slot, right? And so that, again, puts more pressure on that clinician who ends up having to see these folks. Um, and then patient satisfaction, right? How many of you are working in systems where there's active patient satisfaction metrics that are being measured? Okay, so a good number of you, right? There are a number of different institutions that are tying clinician compensation in directly to patient satisfaction scores, right? And the challenge with that is that a lot of times the patient satisfaction scores have absolutely nothing to do with the care that the person received, right? And a section for comments, well, I gave this person a three out of five because I don't like the fact that I have to park so far away from the clinic. You know, it has no relevance to the care that a person's receiving, but all of a sudden their score is lower, and when their compensation is tied in to the total score that they get, that creates more stress on that particular clinician, right? Add to that the way these metrics get utilized, even though these are often done on a Likert scale, um, a lot of different systems basically treat them as dichotomous variables. If you get a five, that's great. Anything less than a five counts as a zero, right? Whereas that, that doesn't really make any sense. It defeats the whole purpose of a Likert scale, but that's a whole different, uh, a whole different discussion to have. But all of these things are additional stressors now that we have within our healthcare system, things that weren't in place many decades ago, but things that are part of the reality of healthcare today. So what are the implications of all these new demands and all these stressors in the environment? Well, these things have a tendency to create burnout, right? And burnout is characterized by a number of different factors. There's emotional exhaustion. And emotional exhaustion is where a person feels basically emotionally depleted. They don't feel that they have the emotional reserves to deal with either the stress in the work environment or the stress in their personal lives. They just feel overwhelmed. There's a high level of cynicism that we see with burnout, and that's a high level of pessimism. Or when you see a person who's uh, jaded, right? You know, a lot of times if you think back to when you first entered wherever you're working, there is always that one person who's been there for like 14 years who just has nothing nice to say about things. You're like, oh man, that person's jaded, right? But that, what you're po possibly seeing is some of the cynicism that we oftentimes see that comes with burnout. Low satisfaction, and this, this makes sense. When people have burnout, there's a low level of satisfaction that they have with their work and with their work environment and with life. Life satisfaction starts to go down in people that have high levels of burnout. So we understand that there's systemic variables that create burnout. We understand some of the, um, the, different, the definition of burnout. I want to explain a little bit more about what it is that causes people to be burnt out. Why is it that these systemic variables result in the onset of burnout? 
So one of the things is a loss of control. When we look at these different systemic variables that we talked about, um, what were they? Uh, EMRs, patient access, patient satisfaction. Right? Does anybody in here have the ability to change press Ganey within your system? No, right? Have the ability to change EPIC and make changes so that the system works the way we want to, or if you're in the VA, change CPRS? No, we don't have the ability to do those things. And so not being able to control the things that create a high level of stress in our environment is a big aspect of what contributes to burnout. And one of the pieces is in that is a sense of helplessness that starts to evolve. Right? There was a, a study done by uh, Seligman in the 1970s um, about this, this concept of helplessness and learned helplessness. And uh, real simply, what it was, there were these dogs that were placed in cages. And there was no way for the dogs to escape the cages. And the cages, the bottom of the cage was electrified. And so there's electric current that was sent, and so the dogs were shocked, right? And yeah, that's why we have IRBs now. You know, right? they, can't, they can't do this anymore, right? It was at Stanford. Um, <laughs> but so the dogs couldn't escape the cages, right? And so after a period of time, the dogs would just kind of sit there because they couldn't escape the cages. Later on, they opened the cage door where the dog actually had an exit to get out, and then they re-delivered the shocks again, right? And what they found is the dogs wouldn't leave, right? They would just stay in the cage because they learned the sense of helplessness. They had learned from the previous experience that my attempts to get out and escape this unpleasant stimulus were futile, and so there's no way out. And so that's what they call learned helplessness, right? And we see elements of that that can come with the loss of control, and that feeds into burnout as well, right? The mismatch person and role. There's statistics out there that say that if a person spends less than 20% of their time doing the work that's meaningful to them, they're 275% more likely to burn out. 275% more likely to burn out. It's a pretty significant number. But I mean, let's, let's stop and think about that. You might think if a person's spending less than 20% of their time doing meaningful activity, oh, that seems like a very small number. I mean, I do, I do a lot of work at work. Well, let's stop and think about that, right? If you're spending, think about all the time that you spend at work, all the number of hours doing direct and indirect patient care. When you add up how much time you spend doing the computer work, add up how much of your lunch hour that you end up doing peer-to-peers, add up how much time you spend dealing with the clinic staff, addressing you know, inappropriately booked patients, things along those lines. You know, those aren't the things that you went to school for. Those aren't the things that really drive you or that give you satisfaction. It's the clinical care that you enjoy doing, right? And so when we find that people are spending less time doing that product that they find most meaningful to them, that's something that can trigger a higher level of burnout. And low support. Low support is more of a global thing. If a person doesn't have good social support in their home environment, if there's low support within the system to try to help make changes in the issues that are leading to burnout, or low support within their colleagues, these are all factors that can also contribute to burnout. And then lastly, poor balance, right? We always hear about this concept of work-life balance. And there's actually, there's a myth. I've heard a lot of people um, say, well, I try to achieve a 50-50 balance in my work-life balance. Um, and that's a myth that 50-50 is really what we need to achieve. Work-life balance is a very subjective thing. Everybody's work-life balance is going to be their own unique equation that varies from one person to the next. That's also dynamic in nature, right? It changes based on where you are in your life and what else is going on in your life. For example, when you first finish school, when you first get your, your initial job, 
you may decide that, you know what, my work-life balance is going to be, I'm going to spend 80% of my time dedicated to work and 20% related to family stuff because I really want to make an impression. I really want to be strong going into this job. And that may work for you. That may work for your family system, and that may be the perfect balance for you. But then as you start to have a family, as you start to have kids, you may decide, you know what, this doesn't work. I need to, I need to change that. Now I want to spend 50% of my time at work and 50% of my time with my family. Or if you don't like your kids, you may still want to keep that 80-20 that balance before. <laughs> but it's a, it's a dynamic process that changes based on what our life variables are. right? And so that 50-50 thing really isn't necessarily what we strive for. But what we need to make sure is that whatever balance makes the most sense for us is something that we have. But when a person doesn't have that balance, whatever the, their needs are, that's something that can start to feed into the, uh, the burnout process. <coughs> Excuse me. So what are the implications of burnout? Well, we know that when clinicians are burnt out, they are at higher risk for conducting medical errors. Right? There's a higher rate of errors with clinicians that are burnt out than those who are not burnt out. We also know that when people are burnt out, that uh, patient satisfaction scores tend to go down. Right? That's somewhat of a no-brainer. If you're working with a clinician who's not too terribly happy in their job, there's a good likelihood that that encounter with the patient isn't going to be the most rewarding one for the patient or for the clinician themselves. So that makes sense that the patient satisfaction scores will go down. It's clear that the uh, clinician satisfaction is going to go down as they're burnt out. But then also, turnover. As a person is burnt out, um, they're not enjoying their work, they're not getting satisfaction in their work, there's a higher likelihood that they're going to leave that particular job. But this has implications for the system, because it's estimated that the cost of replacing a physician is approximately $1 million. Right? And that figure is based on the cost of recruitment, the cost of um, downtime when you don't have somebody to see the patients, um, the uptraining for people, the cost of credentialing, all these different things, but a $1 million expense to, uh, to basically replace a physician. So if you think, if you're at a, at a large organization, and if you have hundreds of physicians, and let's say that there are five in the system every other year, or five a year, that get burnt out and leave and just move to a different practice as a result of burnout, that's $5 million a year. Right? That's a pretty significant chunk of money. Right? So it has strong implications for the medical systems as well. But there are more important implications for the person. Right? So burnout occurs at a higher rate, a disproportionately higher rate among U.S. physicians compared to any other working group within this country. Um, and the prevalence of depression among physicians in the United States is approximately 39%. That's a pretty staggering figure. Right? Um, emotional exhaustion among primary care nurses is estimated to be 23 to 31%. And approximately a quarter uh, of ICU nurses experience post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. And then suicide rates among physicians is approximately two times that of the general population. Right? So not only are there implications for the system, but there are very strong implications for the person as well in terms of why we need to try to address burnout. So what can be done about this? Well, there's, there's two things. First is, we need to make sure that things are being done at the individual level, but also at the system level, right? It's important, if there are any administrators in here, to also make sure that organizations are doing things to try to address burnout as well. And this goes beyond just doing programs to try to help address burnout, programs to try to help do resilience. Because if you teach, if you think about it, there's, a, there's actually an irony around there that 
we understand that a lot of our systems create burnout, so we're going to teach you how to deal with our systems, right? I mean, there's an irony with that. It, even though the, the programs, mindfulness programs or things along those lines, they may have the best of intentions. I'm sure that the, the reasons for putting those things in place come out of a good space, um, but there needs to be more than just that. Ultimately, systems need a change in order for the, the whole, basically the whole culture needs to change, right? But given that we as a group can't just make the system change, what I'm going to focus on more in my talk is what are some of the things that you can do at a personal level to try to help combat burnout and to try to promote your own personal wellness. So what do we do? Basically, we want to try to build resilience. And resilience is basically our ability to tolerate, our ability to withstand the vicissitudes of life, these different stressors that come about that cause a high level of emotional reactivity both in our personal lives and our professional lives, how can we basically make ourselves more robust so that these things don't take such a significant toll on us? And there's a range of different coping skills that we can learn that helps facilitate this process. There's a wide range of different things, and I'm just going to go over three of them with you guys here today. So, you know, I go over this. Breathing, relaxation, exercise, and mindfulness approaches, cognitive behavioral strategies. You know, a lot of times when people hear that, this is the type of stuff that comes into people's mind. They're like, oh, he's going to go over that wishy-washy stuff. Okay, that's right, he's a psychologist. Oh, and he's in California, of course. That's going to be what it is, right? And it's understandable that that's what people would think, right? But the reality is, is all the stuff that I'm going to go over with you guys is stuff that's rooted in science, that has a scientific basis to it. And as I go over these different strategies and techniques, I'm going to not just talk to you about what they are, but explain the mechanism behind them, as well as talk about what we know the implications are of engaging in these different practices. So first, stress. We can't escape stress, right? Unless any of you work somewhere where somebody's invented a stressectomy, and if you have, please email me because I need to get that, right? But unfortunately, stress is just one of those parts of life that we just have to deal with, right? But stress has pretty significant implications for our bodies, right? So what happens with stress? So whenever the brain detects the presence of a stressor, it activates the body's sympathetic nervous system, right? And all of you guys are familiar with the, the basic fight-or-flight response, right? So sympathetic nervous system gets activated, Heart rate increases, blood pressure increases, blood vessels constrict, stress hormones get released in the body, and all these changes happen immediately to help us deal with that stressor, right? As soon as the stressor is gone, the brain detects there's no longer a stressor present, activates a parasympathetic nervous system, which brings the body right back down to its previous baseline, right? Now, all of us have felt this before, right? Think about if you're driving in your car and somebody cuts you off in traffic, right? All of a sudden, you feel your grip tighten on the wheel, Right? You hold your breath, you feel your heart beating really fast, maybe have a bead of sweat going down your forehead. That's the sympathetic nervous system activating the face of that stressor. But as soon as you realize you're a safe distance from that car in front of you, after a few choice words and hand gestures, you feel your body calm right back down. Right? And that's a parasympathetic nervous system bringing you back to normal. You didn't have to do anything to make that happen. It was all regulated by your brain and your body. It just did it automatically. Right? And again, we know this as the fight-or-flight response within the body. We all get taught it in high school. But the way that we get taught it is we're always taught about it in terms of a life-threatening stressor, right? And that we do this as a survival technique. But the reality is, is we get some degree of sympathetic nervous system reactivity in the face of any type of stress. It doesn't matter if it's life-threatening or not. So whether it be that you're walking down Las Vegas Boulevard 
and a Doberman foaming at the mouth comes up behind you and starts growling, or if it's that your significant other calls you from home and you have a bad argument on the phone tonight, right? Even though we might see these as being qualitatively different, one is life-threatening and physically dangerous and the other is emotional, to the brain, stress is stress. And so they're both still going to cause some degree of nervous system reactivity. Now, the magnitude of sympathetic response we get varies depending on the nature of the stressor, but we still get some degree of nervous system reactivity, right? Now, why is this important in the context of health and wellness? Well, this has pretty significant implications for our cardiovascular functioning, right? Heart disease. You know, we find that when people live in highly stressful environments, if people have high level of stress in their work environment and their personal lives, what can end up happening is they stay in a heightened level of stress response at a chronic, at a chronic level, or chronically, right? And what that does is that creates more stress on the cardiovascular system, and it can lead to cardiovascular problems over the course of time. And so we need to try to teach people ways of trying to combat this, ways of trying to calm this reactivity so that they don't have those unhealthy outcomes. So what's a way that we can do this? One of the ways that we can do this is through regulation of our breathing, right? And what breathing exercises are specifically targeting is a lot of the sympathetic nervous system reactivity. So you might be thinking to yourself, okay, breathing, really? Is that what this guy's going to talk about, all this lead-up, and he's just going to talk about breathing? But it's a specific type of breathing, not just the breathing that you're doing right now, but the specific type of breathing called diaphragmatic breathing. Now, when we breathe, what we're basically doing is we're bringing oxygen in from the environment and putting carbon dioxide back out, right? And this air exchange occurs in our lungs. And basically, when you breathe in, we're bringing air into the lungs, expelling it back out. And our lungs are basically like giant air sacs. They're like balloons, right? So if you, th- and again, I know I'm simplifying this quite a bit, but if you think about a balloon, so think about the kind of balloon that a, a clown has, right? The kind that they use to make poodles and swords and things like that. If any of you have a fear of clowns, I just traumatized you. But if you have that kind of balloon and you start to blow into it, what part inflates first? The part close to your mouth or the end of the balloon? Part close to your mouth, right? But then as you breathe in more fully into the balloon, the entire balloon starts to expand, right? Well, it's actually the same thing with our lungs. And again, I'm simplifying this quite a bit. But as we breathe in, it's the upper registers of our lungs that expand first. But as we breathe in fully, the entire lung expands. As our lungs expand, they don't start to come up into our throat. They don't pop in out of our rib cage. But they move down into our, our thoracic canal and push on our diaphragm. And we start to get contraction expansion of our diaphragm. And we see this as our belly rising and falling. Right? This type of deep breathing, belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing, is actually our natural way of breathing. If you look at a a pet or a baby when they're asleep, is it their belly that's rising and falling or their chest? It's their belly, right? Again, this is our natural way of breathing. But what happens is when we're exposed to stress, we end up doing different things with our breathing. We either hold our breath, we either do more shallow breathing, or we can start to hyperventilate, do a lot of rapid shallow breathing. So one of the things that we can do to try to regulate our breathing in the face of stress is to first start by shifting the breathing to a deeper breath, right? A deeper diaphragmatic breath where we're breathing fully, causing the diaphragm to expand and contract. But it's not just a deep breath that we need to do. There are several other pieces that we need. The second thing is we need the breath to be slow, right? Now, what's nice is as we try to breathe deeply, that helps slow the breathing down. 
And as we slow the breathing down, that helps make it deeper. So these two things kind of work in concert with each other. But what I usually recommend for folks is using a counting system. So inhale to a count of five, pause for a second, then exhale for a count of five, pause for another second before taking another breath. But this shouldn't feel like something jagged. This shouldn't feel like, okay, inhaled, I paused, I exhaled, I paused, inhale, pause. It shouldn't feel jagged at all. It should feel very much wave-like. Like, I took a breath in, can't get any more breath out, in, so I natural pause, exhale, feel like I can't get any more breath out, natural pause, and wait again. Right? And so that's the basic aspect of the breathing you want, but there's one last step that we need to have if we want the breathing to be effective. And this is, this is the exact same strategy we teach patients in chronic pain. And that last strategy is controlling where your mind is, right? If you're trying to do, if you're in the midst of a stressful situation and you're trying to use breathing exercises to try to calm your body down, but you keep replaying that stressful situation in your mind, what do you think the impact of the breathing exercises is going to be? None. Right? Because you're trying to calm your body's physiologic reactivity down with the breathing, but your brain is focusing on something stressful, so it's just reactivating the nervous system. Right? And so you'll walk away from that and you'll say, I tried that breathing exercise, I learned a pain week, and it didn't work, so I'm going to put a negative review on his thing. Right? <laughs> when it's not that breathing exercises don't work, it's that you perhaps didn't optimize that one piece of it, which is controlling where your mind is. And that is the hardest part of breathing exercises, right? When you're experiencing stress in the work environment, let's say that somebody did something that you find really offensive or that you felt really was wrong, what do you continue to focus on? A stressful situation. We keep replaying it in our minds over and over and over again, right? And so it's very difficult to try to just use a breathing exercise to try to quiet our mind and, and bring ourselves into a place where we're in a calmer state. But breathing exercises, these things are not meant to be cures for the stressful situation. It's just meant to be a tool that you use to help quiet the body's physiologic reactivity, right? And it's not the same thing as mindfulness, right? Mindfulness is a completely different concept, which we'll go over in a second. But what we're trying to do with breathing exercises is a number of different things. First of all, you want to be able to do the breathing exercises in such a way that when a stressful situation comes up, you can use the breathing exercises to calm that physiologic reactivity. But the second thing you want to use breathing exercises for is you want to be doing these frequently enough that you reset where your body lives at baseline. Right? I mentioned that when people live with high levels of stress, they tend to have higher levels of sympathetic nervous system reactivity at baseline. Well, if you get in the habit of regularly doing breathing exercises, then what you're essentially doing is you're helping to lower what that baseline is that you carry. And so that's part of the target of what we're doing. It's not just about doing this when the stuff hits the fan, but doing this on a chronic basis and building it into our lives to help reset where we're living. Right? Again, it's not a cure. It doesn't fix things, but it just helps our bodies in terms of managing the physiologic impact of stress. And it's not the same thing as mindfulness. We can do breathing mindfully, but it's not the same thing as mindfulness. So mindfulness-based stress reduction um, this is an actual curriculum that was developed by John Kabat-Zinn at UMass in 1979. And the curriculum is actually an eight-week curriculum. It's comprised of weekly sessions, a full-day retreat, and there's a high level of um, experiential work that's done um, during the class sessions. So a lot of meditation work that's done, and there's a strong emphasis on practice, on what people do between the sessions. Um, and that part is important because just like the breathing exercises, it's not just about learning and understanding it, but it's about applying it so that you can get the full benefit of it. 
John Kabat-Zinn defines mindfulness as the awareness that emerges through paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally to the unfolding of experience moment to moment. What that basically means is being in the present moment in a non-judgmental fashion. And when you think about the hectic nature of a workday, if you're thinking about all the documentation that you needed to do for the patient that you just saw, and you know that the, next, the patient that you're going to see after the one that you're seeing right now is a doozy that always takes up a lot of time, then you're not present with the person that you're seeing in your, in right in front of you. And you may miss important details, right? And so in mindfulness, an example of applying mindfulness to that situation is just being present in the moment with the patient who you're seeing, listening to what, you're, what they're saying, and just being in that present moment. And bringing mindfulness into our work is just that, trying to stay in the present moment as much as possible. Right? Is it possible for somebody to do diaphragmatic breathing 24-7 and to be mindful 24-7? Absolutely not. Right? And that's not what we strive to do. But what the goal is is just to be able to bring these concepts into our life and use them effectively to help, again, mitigate the likelihood of developing burnout. And so in clinical settings, we've actually found that there's actually not a lot of good studies in terms of the long-term effectiveness of mindfulness in terms of minimizing burnout. But we have found that um, patient clinicians who describe themselves as being mindful clinicians, um, patients rate them better in terms of their communication strategies, and patient satisfaction is higher when they're working with somebody who's identified as being more mindful. But that makes sense, because if a person is more present in the moment, then, of course, that ex exchange is probably going to have a more positive effect for the person, for the clinician, and for the patient. So mindfulness isn't a religious-based thing. It's not simply clearing your mind. And, again, it's not a cure, but it's just an approach that we can take to help combat um, burnout. So, actually, I want to do one more thing to think about in terms of mindfulness. I was, this actually just happened well, this just happened early this week during pain week. I was talking to a, a physician colleague. We were sitting at the, at the Cliff Bar, and um, he was asking me, so what are you talking about? And I told him the things I was talking about, and he was having a hard time understanding what I meant by mindfulness. He said, I just don't get that. I'm in the present moment. I'm talking to you. you know? I'm always mindful. And I said, no, it's not, it's not that. And so he had a hard time grasping it. And so I appreciate that this can be kind of an out there thing that does feel like the West Coast weird stuff. So I gave him an example that really resonated with him, and so I just figured I'd just throw this out there just for the sake of you guys, given that it did resonate strongly with him. Um, he was drinking wine, right? And so I just said to him, I said, actually, no, I'm sorry, he was drinking beer. And so I said, the first sip that you took of your beer, he was drinking an IPA, and I said, you never knew what that beer tasted like, but when he took that first sip, right, what did you do, right? He goes, I took a sip. I'm like, okay, come on. Now, I mean, once he got through with his little sarcastic responses, I said, what did you do? He goes, well, I noticed what it tasted like. I noticed kind of what it smelled like and, you know, just that it was cold and refreshing and it made my body feel good as I sipped it, right, that first sip. And I said, okay. So he was describing the things that he was aware of associated with that first sip, and he enjoyed it quite a bit, right, but being aware of all the sensations in that particular moment, not thinking about the fact that his flight was late, not thinking about the things he has to do later in the week, but just being in the present moment, fully savoring that particular sip. But I asked him, did you do that for the rest of the sips of the beer that you had? And he goes, no. And so I said, do you think that you would have enjoyed that beer a lot more if you would have taken and savored every single sip, or at least more of the sips that way? And he said, probably. 
And that's essentially, I mean, that's a, that's a very distilled version. No pun intended with distilled, but that's a, that's a very distilled version of what we're trying to do with mindfulness, is trying to bring that type of element. You know, so think about it. With whether, whether you enjoy a beverage or you enjoy food, right? We do so many things. We're that first taste of food. We can appreciate it, but then we just kind of keep shoveling this stuff in our mouth, not really paying attention to, to what we're savoring or enjoying. But if you take the time to savor each bite, or most of the bites. If you do savor each bite, it's going to take forever to get through dinner. But if you do it more often than not, that's an aspect of mindfulness. And then bringing those elements into your daily life, right? Savoring the different things that you see around you. You know, I, I did a mindfulness-based stress reduction class. It was an abbreviated version that they had at Stanford. And I decided that one of the things I was going to do was I was going to stop looking at my phone when I walked from the parking lot to the hospital. And what I made myself do was each day I'd have to notice something different. I've been doing this walk for 14 years, right? But I wanted to make sure that I saw something different each day, something that I could appreciate uh, that I didn't notice before. Um, and so that was just something just to try to be, bring mindfulness into my life. So it's not something where you're like, oh, crap, I'm burnt out. Now this guy's telling me more stuff I've got to do in my life. It's more about how can I find ways to fit this in so that it becomes a part of my life. So as you go on with your day, I want you to ask yourself, are you being mindful or mindful? All right. And then the the last thing I'll go over with you guys is the role of cognitions. And this is one of my favorite things. Um, When any situation or event occurs in our lives, our physical, emotional, and behavioral outcomes aren't determined by that situation but rather it's determined by the way that we interpret that situation or event, right? We always link things to the situation or event, but the reality is, is it's not that that causes our emotional reactions, our physical, physiologic reactions, or our behaviors, but it's our interpretations. And what I like about this, what I find empowering about this, is that it gives us the power to influence some of what's going on. So we talked about some of the factors that contribute to burnout, that there's a wide range of systemic variables that influence burnout. Well, we are powerless to change some of those different things. But what we do have the power to change is how we interpret some of those things, which can make all the difference in the world in terms of what our emotional, physical, and behavioral outcomes are. You know, so applying this, so basically it's a simple linear model. There's some sort of situation or event that occurs. We have some sort of cognitive appraisal of it which leads to our emotional, behavioral, and physical responses. You know, so applying this, let's say that you make some sort of a medical error. Let's say that you wrote down, um, you know, instead of 1.0, um, you accidentally forgot to put the decimal point as you're typing in um, uh, dosing instructions for a medication for a patient, and you wrote 10 instead of 1.0. And as a result, let's say the patient had um, altered mental status, they had to get taken to an ER, uh, everything ended up being okay, but this was something directly related to a mistake that you made, right? You might think to yourself, I'm an idiot. You know, my colleagues might think I don't belong. This is a stupid mistake that I made. You know, I can't do this work. I'm not cut out for it, right? Those thoughts may go through your mind. You may feel sad, anxious, frustrated. And consequently, what you may do is you may overextend yourself in work. You may end up just kind of pushing yourself a little bit harder uh, that particular day or in the days after that. And you're probably going to have a higher level of physiologic reactivity. Sympathetic nervous system is going to be amped up a bit more, right? So all of that in response to that particular situation, right? But it wasn't the situation that caused that. 
but it was the way you interpreted that situation, how you interpreted that error, right? And the thing is, it starts to become a vicious cycle where as we have this high level of emotional reactivity, the thoughts processes start to become more polarized. And as the thoughts become more polarized, we get a higher level of emotional reactivity and it starts to become a vicious cycle, right? And that become, it can become maladaptive because this can then start to lead to the onset of depressive symptoms, anxious symptoms, and the physiologic reactivity can have cardiovascular implications. So we need to try to break this cycle. But how do we break it? Well, the first thing is we need to become aware of our thought processes. And that might sound like something simple, but it actually isn't. Because our thought processes tend to be in our subconscious. Most of our thought processes are automatic. We don't stop and think about how we're going to think about things, right? If somebody were to come up to somebody after the situation occurred and say, you know, why are you so frustrated? Why are you really pushing yourself so hard today? They're not going to say, oh, it's because of the way I'm interpreting the situation or the medical error that I made, right? That's not how we talk, but that is what's actually going on. But what we do is we attribute it to the situation. But the reality is, again, it's that interpretation. So we can't change that situation that occurred. And, you know, we could try to intervene here. And this is where I find that a lot of people do try to intervene. They're like, well, what happened happened, but I'm just going to, I'll just change my behaviors and I'll just kind of keep pushing forward. And in a lot of cases, that can be fine and that might work. But over the course of time, especially when you're dealing with systemic variables that you can't move and you can't change, you're going to hit a wall with that, right? And as long as you keep having these same cognitive appraisals of difficult situations, you're not going to find that just changing the behaviors is going to be sustainable, right? So we have to try to target the thought processes. But that's tough to do because, as I said, the thought processes are automatic. The way that we process things are rooted in our early life experiences. The messages that we get from teachers, the messages that we get from parents, the messages that we get from other kids, all of these messages early in our life start to shape how we view ourselves and how we view the world around us. And then it starts to get reinforced by the people that we have in our life, coworkers superiors or superiors, supervisors, things along those lines. All these things shape our perceptions and our cognitive appraisals. And our cognitive appraisals tend to be very stable and very rigid, right? And so it's not as easy just to change a thought process just because you identify that there's something maladaptive about it. So it can take a significant amount of time to do it, but we need to do it, right, if we want to create sustainable change. But it's not something as simple as, oh, you just need to think about something positive, Right? Just turn that into something positive. Because I guarantee you, the same day that you make the medical error, let's say that same day, you know, let's say you saw 20 patients that day. And let's say that there was somebody who um, you know, had early onset CRPS and you're able to get them on a, on a particular regimen and they were doing better. Let's say that there was another person that you diagnosed a Cotta-Aquinas syndrome, you sent them to an ER, they had surgery and they were doing better. These people came in for return visits and they were very grateful to you you're probably not going to focus on those things. You're going to focus on that one medical error that you had, and that's going to be what continues to eat at you over and over again, right? So we need to target these thought processes, and it's not as simple as just focusing on the positive, but what we know about the thoughts is it's when the thought processes are inaccurate and unhelpful that they start to lead to negative consequences. And so we need to modify the thoughts into something that is more accurate and helpful. And this is just a, a simple, simple example. I mean, again, there's much more layers of complexity to how we might do something like this. But analyzing the thought processes and trying to modify them into something that is more accurate and more helpful. You know, I'm not perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. 
Um, I've mastered difficulties before. Things along those lines where you're not just turning something negative into something positive, right? You're not saying, well, the patient didn't die, right? Which is true, but you're sitting there trying to directly address the core of those cognitions. Again, this is at a very superficial level. The reality is, is the thought processes that you have and the cognitions that you need to modify are probably much deeper rooted. Um, and you'd probably find that across different situations in your life, when similar situations occur, you have that same tendency across different pathways. And so as you start to make changes in one domain, you see that it starts to bleed over in others. At the same way you respond to a stressful situation at work, you find, you know what, I, I kind of do that when I have an argument with my partner as well. And that as you start to make a change in one area, it bleeds over into others. And this is, this is a very simplified version. I mean, it's basically an overview of CBT in three minutes. But this is essentially what we do in CBT, is modifying the thoughts. And this is what's been very effective in treating depression, treating addiction, treating panic, treating anxiety. It's strong evidence to support using cognitive behavioral therapies to do that. You know, I find a lot of times people, especially when they're experiencing depression with high levels of stress, they just look for a medication. Let me just find an antidepressant medication, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Medications can be extremely useful in combating the symptoms of depression that we have. But outside of therapy that helps target the thought processes, there's not a pill that changes how we think about things. And so we really want to make sure that we're doing some of that work around what are the things that are driving the depression as well. And so what are other ways that you can do this? You know, let's say that, you know what, I don't really find myself doing that, or I, I tried to do that, but I can't find ways to change my thoughts. You know, what are other things that I can do? There are other things that we can do to try to start to shift what our focus is. You know, particularly if you find yourself in an environment where there's a high level of stress, a high level of situational variables that you can't control, to start to move your perspective from a lot of the things that you don't have control over to some of the more positive things that are there. Um, one of the things that I like is the, the three good things. How many of you are familiar with three good things? Not many of you, a couple of you. <clears throat> so what this is, is at the end of the day, what you want to do is you want to write out three good things that happened that particular day, right? And you don't want to just do this exercise in your head. You actually want to write this out because writing it out is a process that it's a form of rehearsal that helps to encode it more in your brain. But when you write it out, you don't want to just write out three good things. Okay, the dog didn't mess, mess up the house today. Um, you know, the garbage people didn't make a mess. You don't want to just write simple things like that. You want to write, and you know, it may be those things, but you need to have a lot more detail about it. What was a good thing that happened, right? Why did it feel good to you? Or no, number one, what was a good thing that happened? How did it make you feel? Why did it make you feel that way, right? And you want to do this because this is a process of helping you become more aware of the things that helps you become more aware of your own emotions, more aware of your positive emotions, and more aware of the things that help fuel those positive emotions within yourself, right? And the more you do that, then the more you can try to gravitate towards those things that do fulfill those positive emotions in your life. But what it also starts to do, if you do this for three things every day and write that level of detail, what it starts to do is it starts to shift your perspective where over time you start to notice more of the good things that happen as they happen in your life, which means you inadvertently start becoming more mindful as a result of this process. Right? As you start to write these three good things and during the day something good happens and you might notice, oh, this is good, I may write this down tonight but that's because you become aware of something in the moment as it's happening, right? 
And so this can be a really good exercise to help start to shift your perspective and, and become more aware of things. And especially as people are really at the end of their rope and feeling particularly burnt out in a work environment, being able to do this to help shift perspective and recognize that there's more to life than just that work environment or that stressful situation, that can be a really exceptional thing. You know, a gratitude journal is where you keep a journal and uh, write the things that you're grateful for, right? It sounds very simple, but it's kind of in the same vein of keeping track of the things that you're grateful for and writing the reasons why those things, are, that you're grateful for those things. And then I have the golden rule. And this is basically do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, right? Treat other people the way you'd want to be treated. And also in that same vein, it always feels good to get complimented. Give other people compliments as well, right? It's amazing how far that goes when you actually compliment other people, right? And you shouldn't necessarily do it just to fuel yourself, right? And if you do do that, that's okay too, right? But it helps other folks feel good about themselves. But again, it allows you to start to see the good that other people have as well. It starts to help, particularly if you're feeling burnt out, the tendency is to gravitate toward the negative side of things, to only focus on the things that aren't positive. Looking for those good things can help us to create more of a balance in the, in the valence of what we're seeing around us. Right? So what we've done at Stanford, um, we recognize that burnout is a pretty significant problem. Actually, the ACGME recognized that it's a significant issue. And so I think it was this year or last year it required that all residency programs have something dedicated to burnout, to try to address burnout within residents. Um, but eight years ago um, at Stanford in our anesthesia department, we actually created a program to foster resilience and a sense of community with their anesthesia residents. And so uh, Emily Ratner and Tara Cornaby are two anesthesiologists that they co-founded the, uh, the PRIME program. Um, Emily has since left, and now um, and Tara is no longer there, but now I co-direct that uh, program with uh, Natalia Hassan-Hill. And the primary goal is to create a program that maximizes the wellness of our trainees. And so it starts at the very beginning of the resident CA one year, and within the first six weeks of their, within the first eight weeks of their arrival, we take them to a, a spa a resort, Chaminade, in Santa Cruz Mountains, and we spend from Friday night to Sunday noon at that resort. And it's a, it's a structured resort or a structured time that we have there. It's not just we'll take you there and you guys just have fun. But we have some didactics, but a lot of experiential work, and a lot of it is based on some of John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction work. It's not the same thing as what he does, but it's based on some of his MBSR work. Um, and what we do is we break, we usually have about 20, 24, this past year we had 24 residents who attended, and we break them up into two groups. Um, and then each group has two facilitators, and we go into small group rooms, and we do a lot of the experiential stuff. We do some different types of meditation and mindfulness work, but then we also have some, some didactic sessions to help them understand the science behind what they're doing. Um, what we want to do with this is, the biggest thing we want to do is help develop a sense of community. For our residents, these folks are coming from all over the country. They've worked ridiculously hard all their lives, you know, going to, working hard in high school to get into a good college, to get into a good medical school, to get into a competitive, you know, Stanford residency. And nobody has ever really talked to them about wellness or any of these types of concepts, right? It's always been go, 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 go. Um, and now, all of a sudden, they're no longer a student, but more in the model of an apprentice. And so more in the model of a job. 
and they're far away from their local support systems. A lot of times they've had to engage in long-distance relationships, and many of them don't have much in the way of coping resources. And so we want to try to help introduce them to coping resources and help them uh, develop a sense of community. And so that's what we focus on with the retreat. Um, following the retreat, uh, every six to eight weeks during the residency, for the rest of the residency, for the rest of the three years, they have wellness sessions where they stay within their groups um, and the same facilitators meet with them and track their progress, continue to reinforce uh, the wellness concepts, teach them different coping strategies like some of the CBT stuff, communication strategies, stress management, uh, to again foster the sense of resilience. Um, we have some data that's collected. Well, we have other things as part of the PRIME program. We have a symposium. Um, we have a scholarship program. But for the PRIME program itself, we're collecting data. The challenge is, is that we can't have a control group. So we can't say, well, this is what it looks like if we don't do, you know, for the residents that don't get the, uh, the retreat, because we want to offer it to all the residents. Um, but we have boxes of data that are sitting up in my office that we have to put into the computer. So that's the, the only part that we're lagging. But as soon as we have that, we will present some of that um, later on. So what can you do? So in your lives, you can try to incorporate mindfulness into your own lives, right? So when you go out to dinner tonight, or if you go out to get a, a post-conference beverage tonight, whatever that is, even if it's a glass of sparkling water, right? Try to drink it mindfully, right? Try to eat your food mindfully. Just try to be present in the moment and try to see how you can bring that into your life on a more daily basis. See how you can bring that into your life and your practice um, in your home environment. Um, become aware of maladaptive self-talk. When things happen that are stressful for you, pay attention to what happens in your mind. What are the things that you tell yourself? Where are the places that your brain goes? And see if you can start to see patterns that emerge and see if you can try to modify some of those patterns. Um, actively engage in activities to help shift your perspective. Again, things like the three good things, uh, expressing gratitude, do breathing exercises, and show appreciation to people around you. Right? And then the last thing, that's so critically important to understand is knowing and doing are two different things, right? All of you are ridiculously bright individuals. I have no doubt in my mind that you could probably go and you could probably go across the hall and teach the same lecture that I just gave and do it, right? And these concepts really aren't earth shattering, right? It's not rocket science. So being able to understand these things and recite them is not the same thing as applying them and getting the benefit from them, right? I, I liken this to exercise, right? Somebody can tell me, you need to go to the gym, and I can sign up to go to the fanciest gym in the Bay Area. I can get the most expensive trainer that they have there, and he or she can walk me through all the exercises I need to do, and I can understand what I need to do. I can understand how it would benefit me physiologically. But if I don't go to the gym, is my body going to get in the shape that I want it to? No, it won't. And it's the same thing with these different types of practices for wellness. Knowing and doing are two different things. And again, I tell the same thing to our patients. Pain management, knowing and doing are two different things, right? Just because you understand the different concepts we teach, that doesn't mean that you're doing them. And so we want to make sure that not just you, that you, you grasp these things, but that you're trying to apply them as best you can. Okay. So thank you very much for your time. Oops. If you have questions, feel free to send me an email or I'll be